0: If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 1. Now, that doesn't take too long to turn there, but we'll start there in a minute. I want to start just by asking this simple question. Is there anybody else here in this room that can't wait for November 9th to come around and the election cycle to be over with? I know uh, I am, and I I say that jokingly, knowing that, don't get me wrong, I, I am so thankful for our right to vote I'm thankful we live in a democracy where we can elect representatives but my goodness it just seems like we have hit a new low this year, haven't we? Just the the fact that we can't even have disagreements without being uncivil, we can't cease it's like every time you turn on the TV it's just name calling, it's just pointing fingers, it's just digging up dirt And there seems to be no care, no concern for actually discussing what really matters. And so in kind of a cynical way, I admit, I confess, I just can't wait till November 9th comes around so we can get past it. But I know elections are necessary. I know they're a good thing. And I know for each and every person uh, that has the right and the privilege to vote, there's sort of a process that we have to go through, right, of determining how we're going to vote generally we begin to think through the issues that matter to us. And we might think, okay, what is the most important issue and where, does the, where do these candidates where do they stand on this particular issue? And then that helps us to determine how we vote. Well, for me, I know for many, many years, the number one issue on that list has always been the pro-life issue. The question of where does this candidate stand on the belief that all life is sacred? And so this morning I want to speak on the subject of being pro-life. But I want want us to think through the entirety of Scripture and what God's Word says as a whole to consider what does it really mean to be pro-life. Because I think when we do this, when we go through the passages we're going to look at, we're going to see that to be pro-life is more than simply a stance on abortion but instead it is a care, a concern of how we see all of life. I believe as Christians that when we say we are pro-life, it should be defined a lot more broadly. As you see on the screen, we should really call it a whole life, pro-life theology. Now I'll unpack what I mean by that as we work through several passages, but let's begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Well, we're going to see the first, the first point I want to make, which is this, that we should be whole life, pro-life, because every life is made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And if we were to work our way continually through Genesis, we would see a a repetition of this theme, that God made man in his image. Then then Adam had children in his image, and there there was this passing on of the image. If you remember, you might not remember this, but a few months ago I preached on this passage, and we talked about that what it means there, that the point of that is to say that God has placed his image in every man, every woman, every child, and because of that image, every life has worth. Every life has value. Even when that life does not reflect the image of God well, the value is still there. I think about it like this. Take this quarter. Now, how much is this quarter worth? Not a trick question. 25 cents, right? It's worth 25 cents. This isn't some special antique quarter. This isn't some special special edition or anything like that. It's just a 25-cent quarter. Now, what if this quarter was brand new? It's worth 25 cents, right? What if it was old? This one was made in 1965. What if it's old? Still worth 25 cents. What if it was really dingy? Still worth 25 cents. If it was shiny, 25 cents. Even if George Washington's head had been completely rubbed off of this thing, what is it still worth? 25 cents. Our lives are the same way. Because of the image of God in us, it does not really matter we still have worth in God's eyes. We might be young. We might be old. We might be bruised and battered. We might feel great. We may not even have found Christ yet, but simply because the image is there, the Bible declares that we have worth, that we have value. And because every life is made in the image of God, every life has value. Secondly, we should be whole life, pro-life, because, simply because God commands it. If you were to work your way through the Old Testament, through the Scripture, you would see a repetition of this idea of the same thing you would see in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 5. If you would, turn there. You see this same theme come up numerous times. And this is God speaking to his people and basically giving them a way to get back to him. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, Then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. If you were to look in Isaiah, if you were to flip over just one book over to the left in Isaiah, God gives the corrupt nation of Judah a path back to righteousness. And this is what he says in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. And so what is God's message in all this? Those who are faithful to Him will be faithful to care for the helpless, will be faithful to care for the hurting, to care for the neglected. The widow, the orphan, the sojourner here, which is basically the foreigner who was found in Israel's land. But at the same time, God's point seems to be this, that as the Israelites cared for those people, that that served in a way as a direct measurement, a direct barometer of their faithfulness to Him. That as they demonstrated that they were caring for the orphan and widow, they showed their faithfulness. And when they failed to do so, they showed that they were wandering from Him. And so as they cared for the orphan, as they cared for the widow, they cared for God. And as they failed to do so, they showed that their hearts were turning. You know, let's imagine that uh, Tubby Smith from the University of Memphis basketball team called you up and hired you to be a recruiter for the basketball team. And he sent you out into the schools in the Shelby County area to recruit talent. What do you think you would look for in the kids that you went and watched play? You'd probably want to see how they shoot. You'd want to see how they handle the ball. You'd want to see how they play defense. You'd want to see how well they take instruction, how well they play as a team. Let's imagine that you were going to build a house and that you decided, hey, I need to figure out which builder I'm going to use. You would probably go to that builder's houses that he's built and do what? You would inspect the work, right? You'd want to know what kind of materials he used. You'd probably want to go to one of the older houses to see how well it's held up, right? So it really comes as no surprise that God would measure the faithfulness of his people on how well they do exactly what he does. Because that's what we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. It describes God in this way. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find the same idea again. James chapter 1, verse 27. You probably have this verse memorized. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And let's turn over to Matthew chapter 25. I want us to read this one. This is probably the, the, the biggest passage to me when it comes to this idea of whole life pro-life. And it comes directly from the words of Jesus, from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew 25 verse 31. Verse thirty-one says, "When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another, as shepherd as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats." Verse thirty-three, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to the one on His right, "Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Often when we hear the phrase pro-life, especially in politics, we immediately think of the plague that abortion has been on our land ever since 1973 when Roe v. Wade passed. It's natural, it's right to think that, to think, man, how do we allow this to happen? But that shouldn't be all that it means for us as believers. Yes, it should be that pro-life means to be anti-abortion. Yes, we should stand up for that. We should vote for that. But our stance should really be broader in that we care for every life. Because think about what God's Word teaches us here. He commands us to care for the orphan, for the widow. From the womb to the twilight years of life. And everywhere in between, the word calls us to care for these people. And even if we turn over to Proverbs 19, 17, I'll just read this one. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And so there is a theme here that his people, that God's people will care for those who are helpless, will care for those who are hopeless, will care for those who have hit rock bottom, will care for those who have no one else who can stand up for them. And so therefore, when we take all this into account, a truly biblical whole-life, pro-life stand means to stand for the unborn, yes. But it means to stand for the orphan as well. It means to be pro-adoption and pro-foster care. And I say these things not just to say that we agree with them mentally, but we work and we help those who are pursuing those paths. It means to fight for the single mom who kept her child instead of aborting it. It means to care for the lady who regrets the decision that she had to abort a child. It means to stand for those who are disabled. It means to seek to protect and help women who have been abused. It means to stand and to help those with special needs. It means to care for the senior adult who feels forgotten in the nursing home or the widow who has no family around to care for them. It means to care for the war veteran who's suffering from the consequences of the things that they saw and the things that they experienced while they were protecting our freedoms. It means to reach out to those who are in prison with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means to fight against human trafficking that we see so prevalent in our world today. It means to fight against racism and hatred wherever we see it. And so do you see what I'm getting at? That we are called by God through His Word to stand and to fight for every soul. Because every soul has worth to God, even when they don't even recognize who the Creator is. And so as a result, to be pro-life is more than just a voting stance. It is a hands-on position for the church. Now often I'm afraid that it's become easy to say that we're pro-life To say, yeah, I'm pro-life. Because for most, for many, all that means is we have to make a vote. Doesn't mean we have to do anything. But when we go to the lengths that God has called us to go, to care for the poor, to help the widow, to take that child into our home that isn't ours biologically, it becomes real begins to impact our wallet, our time, our leisure, our family. But isn't that exactly where God has called us to be? You see, I don't believe God cares so much about our comfort as he does about our hearts and our obedience. And we have a calling to take the gospel to the world. And that means we're going to have to love the unlovable. And so what can we do? How can we live this? I know when we think of all this, you may be thinking, well, Jeff, you just threw a lot of stuff at me. <laughs> There's a lot of people there to care for. Well, here's what I think we do. I think we first and foremost, we pray. I think that being whole life, pro-life means we are people of prayer. And that we pray primarily for four different things. We pray, number one, that God would would, would Act and move in this world and relieve, relieve the suffering that is there. That we would pray every single day, God, would you, just, would you just in your grace and mercy pour out your love on the people of this planet that we wouldn't have to go through the things that we do. That people would turn back to you. That they would see the, the love that you have for us and they would want to follow after you. But I think at the same time, I think we would pray, number two, that God would use us to answer our own prayers. Now, don't mishear me when I say this. I'm not saying we're anything special. But here's what I mean. Sometimes we sit around waiting for the movement of God, and we fail to remember that the church is the movement of God on this earth. That he has called us to be the people of God who act on his his behalf. And where the Bible has spoken, we should already be moving. We don't need any, any new revelation because God's already given it to us. And so then third, we should be praying that God would open our eyes to the needs around us. That we would see with His eyes the hurts and the pains that we pass every single day. And that we would pray that God would close our eyes to those situations where someone would seek to abuse our help, would seek to take advantage of us. And then as we are praying, I believe that secondly that we must refuse to turn a blind eye to those who are truly in need. Let's be honest. Let's, let's be real and say that it is much easier to see the problems and the difficulties that we have going on in our lives than it is to want to step in and help somebody else. Isn't that true? It's so much easier to sit back and say, you know what, I got a lot of bills to pay. I don't really have any extra money. You know what, man, my job is taking a lot more time out of me. I just don't have any time to give to something else. Man, my kids, we're just going through a rough patch right now, and man, I'm just worn out. But it isn't, isn't it true that the excuse list never seems to get shorter? That there's always something going on? If you've had kids, you know that there's probably been a time in your marriage when another couple came up to you and said, could you tell me when the perfect time to have kids is? And what did you do in that moment? You laughed at him, right? (laughs) Because there is no perfect time to have children, right? There is always something. There's always another bill to be paid. There's always another promotion to be had. There's always something going on that makes you think, you know what, now is just not the right time. Well, the same thing goes for this, for what God calls us to in caring for those who are hurting. There is never going to be a perfect time. We are never going to have enough money. We're never going to have enough free time. Things are never going to settle down. And so instead, we need to see those excuses for what they are. They are barriers that the devil has raised in our minds so that we would not be obedient to the Lord. It is as if Satan has said, if I cannot steal their soul, I will steal their attention. And let me preoccupy them with everything going on so that they cannot be the hands and feet of Jesus in their world. And so I believe as we pray... For God, to open our eyes, we must at the same time be praying, God, help me to not become so overwhelmed with the problems and the concerns of my own life that I would turn a blind eye to someone else. But instead, I would see past that and want to serve the Lord, even if it means major sacrifice in my own life. Think for a minute about the ministry of Jesus. Did you ever think about the fact that the majority of his healings took place when he was in the midst of going from one place to another. It wasn't like he necessarily had these scheduled times, like, okay, everybody who needs a healing, come on down. No, he's sitting in a room, and a roof comes open, and they lower a man who's paralyzed. He's walking down a pathway, and a woman comes up from behind and grabs the hem of his garment. That it never seemed to be a convenient time that people brought people to Jesus. But instead, he allowed himself to be interruptible. He allowed himself to to have someone step into his life and him to say, you know what, I'm going to step aside, I'm going to care for this soul. He allowed himself to be interruptible for the sake of the Father. And so should we. And so we pray, we refuse to turn a blind eye, and finally I believe that we must be willing to meet needs where we see them. Think back to Matthew chapter 25, what we just read. What did Jesus describe was taking place? He said, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. He was talking about meeting real needs, wasn't he? He wasn't talking about just mentally agreeing with something. He said his people will motivate themselves, will activate themselves, and will move and will do things to care for others. And so I want to just imagine for just a few minutes some different ways, not that everyone is going to be called to every single way, but some different ways that we as a church and we as individuals could answer the call to be whole life pro-life. So what if? What if families in our church signed up to become foster parents or adoptive parents? One of the blessings that our church has been to us, uh, most of you know that we adopted our boys, and let me just be open and honest, we didn't come to the decision to adopt first We tried to have children on our own for several years, and and for whatever whatever reason, which we know now, God didn't allow that to happen, and he led us to adoption. And so I don't come at you saying, oh, man, I, I figured it out. No, God brought us to that point very humbly. But the point is this, is that when God brought us there, he also brought us to people who supported us. That there were families in this church that came alongside of us and prayed for us and encouraged us. But what if families in our church said, you know what, we will be that family that will step up for that child. And we will be that foster parent. We will be that adoptive parent. What if our church became a place where we trained folks to be foster parents, to be adoptive parents. And we sent people out as missionaries to kids who were in need. Now, maybe there's a legitimate reasons why that isn't an option for you. But what if people in our church that that wasn't an option said, you know what, we will help to fund that cause. Here's the sad truth. The average adoption costs anywhere from $8,000 to $40,000. The average abortion, $500, if that. And so there's little wonder that the birth father says, you know what, hey, hey, girl, just go get yourself an abortion. It's only going to cost 500 bucks when we see all the red tape that families have to go through to adopt a child. When we see all the red tape that families have to go through to be a foster parent. And so what if we became people that fought against that? If we said, we will choose life for that, we, we, we want you to choose life for that child, and we are willing to take that child on to be our own. Just give that child a chance. But like I said, to be whole life pro-life is not just about the abortion issue. What if we did more to meet the needs of the poor in our community? I don't know if you realize, but 22% of the people who live in Shelby County live in poverty. And nationwide, one in five kids, 20%, wonder where their next meal is going to come from. One in five children in our nation. I think about the past four years when we took our students into inner city Memphis to do Bible clubs with a camp called Street Reach, and we went door to door looking for kids to come to Bible club. And I think about those little children that we brought to club every single day. Many of them would show up wearing the same clothes they had on the day before, and the day before, and the day before, because they didn't have anything else. Many of them would scarf down the lunch that we gave them because the last meal they had had was the day before when we gave them lunch. Many of them, you could tell, hadn't had a bath in days. And it's easy for us to sit back and to say, well, that's the parent's fault. And it is. But you know whose fault it isn't? That child. And I think to myself, it's only by the grace of God that I was not born into that situation that God placed me in the family I was placed in. And with the, with the privileges that God has given me, don't you think that we have the responsibility to do something with it? To care for those who seem trapped? Because that, what I noticed in, when we would go into inner city of Memphis is it seemed like this poverty was a cycle. A child was born into it. And as they grew they would eventually get sucked into the life of alcohol and drugs and gangs. And you know what eventually happened? They became a parent who had a child who got caught in the cycle, who then became a parent who had a child that got caught in the cycle. And so what if the church became the ones who said, we want to break the cycle? That's why it excites me so much to go to Brinkley Heights, because they are a church that is breaking the cycle. I love it when I hear their pastor, he'll say these words. He says, whoever spends the most time wins. If it's the gangbanger, they'll win that child. If it's the church, then Jesus will win that child. And so what if, folks? But this isn't just about kids. God's word calls us to care for the widow as well, right? If you were to go to 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, you see that Paul lays out basically the guidelines for caring for widows, for the church's responsibility to care for widows. And his basic rule is this. If that widow or widower does not have someone in their family who lives nearby who can care for them, then it's the church's call. It's the church's place to step in. That if there is a family member there, then the family member should answer the God's call and should care for that person. But if no one is there, then that's where the church steps in. And I am so thankful for the deacons of this church who care for our widows and our widowers. I am so thankful for the people who come alongside them and do that task. But folks, they can't go at it alone. And so maybe that's a call God has placed on your heart, to care for that widow, to care for that widower, to care for that senior adult who feels like the world has just forgotten them as they sit in a nursing home. Or maybe God has placed it on your heart to care for those who have special needs. There were several years that we took our students um, down to a camp called Touch by an Angel just outside of Tupelo. And it was a special needs camp. They would bring in these special needs campers and we would be the staffers. And we would go for the weekend and we would, uh, we would help with basic needs. We would get kids dressed. We would help them with their meals. Uh, we would help them get to bed. We would do activities with them, all these different things. And it was always so neat to see how we went down there thinking that we were going to be the ones doing the ministry. But in actuality, those special individuals would end up ministering to our hearts and touching our lives. But what has been the coolest thing to me is is, is this. Is unfortunately, the camp had to close several years ago because of financial reasons. But it's been neat to me to see that several of the folks that went on those trips saw God's calling in their life and found ways to continue doing that. That they found jobs and ministries where they were able to care for those they got and created with special needs. And so here's my point. While we all can't approach every single issue, we all can do something. We all can do something beyond just having a viewpoint, beyond just casting a vote. In fact, we must Do something. The gospel compels us to care for souls. In fact, our goal in life should be to live in such a way that when the world looks at us, they see how to value a life, even if we never get the chance to say a word. They would see that we love God, that we are Christians, simply by the way that we care for those who can do nothing for us in return. I know in this day and age, especially what's going on seems like this year, it is easy to live in despair, isn't it? It's easy to say, man, it is all coming unraveled. Things are going down, and if if this election turns out one way, oh, my goodness, things are just going to go south. But I heard Chuck Colson say this one time. He believed to live in despair is a sin, and I believe Scripture backs him up. Because the right outlook is not woe is me, all is lost." The right outlook is Jesus is going to win in the end. There is going to be a day where he is going to say, it is finished. And we will fight with him until that day comes to win every single soul. Because every single soul is made with the mark of his creator. This morning I want to close with this. Today I brought this uh, pocket watch with me. I don't know if you can really see this, but uh, nothing really fancy about it. It's kind of worn. If you were to come by this in an antique store, you might say, man, that looks nice. I don't know that it would really fetch a lot of money. But however the value that someone might put on it, to me, it's invaluable. Because it was my papaw's. And I can remember many days in my childhood going to my grandparents' house. They lived on a farm in Dyer, Tennessee. And I can remember hopping in his lap, and I'd pull this out of his overalls, because he only wore overalls. That's all he ever wore (laughs) every day of his life. And I'd pull it out of his overalls, because he always had it in the center pocket right there by his heart. And I'd pull it out, and I'd play with this thing. And so the value in this to me is not in how shiny it is, not in whether it even works anymore. It's in the fact of who owns it, who paid for it, whose sweat paid the bill, and whose sweat even wore some of the gold off of this thing. And when we look at the people that we pass every single day, we need to remember that same fact, that they were made by God, that they were held by Him as He placed them in the womb, and that even today, when their lives may seem battered, May seem like they are far from our Father. He still cares for them. And He has kept us here on this earth so that they may fall in love with Him too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us. God, you have given so much to give your Son for our souls. And Father, you have given us a responsibility to love the unlovable. To care for the helpless. To stand in the gap. And Father, I pray that we as a church would never give up on that calling, would never give up on that cause. God, we would keep fighting every single day for every single soul, knowing that every soul is a soul that you want to save. Knowing that your word says that you don't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And God, through the love that we show, we could be an avenue for someone to come to know Christ. Father, I come to this point of invitation, God, and I just just want to ask that if there's one in this room who you are moving into their heart today to receive salvation, they have never experienced the love of God in their life, the love of Jesus in their life. God, I pray that today would be that day that they would come down this aisle and they would want to know more about how they can receive the forgiveness of their sins and how they can make Jesus the Lord and Savior of their life. And Father, I pray for those in this room who are believers. God, I pray that we would commit ourselves to be whole life pro-life. That we would care about the baby in the womb all the way up to the widow or the widower who any moment could be called home to you. Father, we pray that you would give us a calling. Help us to see with your eyes that we would be able to love people like you love them and show them the amazing love of God that you poured out on us. And it's in Christ's name we do pray.